Look at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 1, we'll read through verse 11. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. Very relevant question. Are we saved by grace or are we saved by the works of the law? You know, that that is a question that has been debated and debated, and debated, and even in this early church, we see it being debated, and we see also how it got resolved. Let me, first of all, look at this from a historical context. For 1,400 years, the people of God had been living under the Mosaic Law. Normally, when we think of the Mosaic Law, we think of the Ten Commandments which were given to Moses by God on the mountain of Sinai. You remember, he was up there on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving those commandments from God. He came down from the mountain, and he found the people of God acting like they didn't even know who God was. And Moses was so upset with what he saw, how they were acting, how they were were conducting themselves, he took those stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and he threw them down in disgust and they broke. And God's judgment came down hard upon those people. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 32 and 33. Then in chapter 34 of Exodus, Moses went back up onto the mountain of Sinai for another 40 days and he received a second set of those Ten Commandments. Now, keep in mind, those are not the only commandments that God gave 
to His people. I have read in multiple places that there are over 600 commands in the Old Testament for God's people to follow. But these 10 that were given to Moses were those that we are the most familiar with. We could call them the top 10 commandments. I wonder if for just a moment... Let's see if we can name them. Can you name the Ten Commandments for me? Holler out real loud. One at a time. Raise your hand and I'll call on you, okay? Okay, Jerry? Okay, that's the first one. No other gods before me. Right here, Cindy. Okay, don't take God's name in vain. I think that's the third one. Rita? Say again, please. Okay. That's a summary. That's a summary of them. But that's not actually one of the ten, okay? Okay, yeah. I think that's the uh, maybe the, the fifth one. Okay, honor your father and mother. Leroy? Yes. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness, okay? Yes? Shall not commit adultery. The second tenth of the ten that we I don't think we've named it yet, no other gods before me, okay? We may be missing one more if I'm thinking right. Something about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Okay? There's actually one more, the tenth one. Thou shalt not covet. I think we got all ten of them. Very good. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, now, let's, l- let me show those to you. Those, there's three of them. Kind of look at them. Get them in your mind of what the Ten Commandments were. Just keep, keep uh, go ahead and put all of them on there, uh, Sandy. Uh, we've got more than the next three. Okay, and then the next set, there we go. Those are the Ten Commandments that God has given to us. Let me ask you, is there anyone other than Jesus that has been able to keep the law? No. Only Jesus has been able to perfectly live according to the law. Just those Ten Commandments alone. We can't live according to them, much less the other 600 and some that are scattered throughout the Old Testament. The fact is, we are all sinners. We are law breakers. Not a one of us could raise our hand and say, I have never lied. Not a one of us could raise our hand and say, I have always honored my mother and father. Now, we may have tried our best to live uh, according to God's law, but none of us can perfectly live according to the law. We're all in the same boat. We're in a boat full of sinners, and there is not one of us who can succeed in keeping the law perfectly. And if we would try to keep the law perfectly, it simply becomes a burden that is heavier and heavier for us to bear. And yet, with all of that said, the people of Israel could hardly give it up. 
They couldn't let go of that which they had always known. It's how they had always lived to try and keep the law. On top of keeping the law, every Jewish male had to be circumcised. It was evidence of whose you were and who you were. Think about that. For every male of the Jewish race, it was evidence, circumcision was evidence of whose you were and who you were. The covenant of circumcision went as far back as Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus. Circumcision was 600 years older than what the Mosaic law was. Think about that. That's how old we're talking about. You talk about some deep-seated traditions. These people were entrenched in trying to live according to the Old Testament laws. Great, 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 great grandma and grandpa lived according to the law. And every generation succeeding them has lived according to the law. And so that's how I'm going to live. That was their mindset. It was a very deeply rooted way of living. And so it's, it's almost unimaginable to us as to how hard it was for them to change. As they came into the church, they brought their old ways with them. And as Gentiles then began to come into the church, for a lot of the Jewish Christians, it was tempting and it was almost natural for them to insist that the Gentile Christians live according to the Jewish tradition. Their men needed to be circumcised. Their law needed to be upheld. And you can see where all of this was going. It wasn't setting too well with the Gentile Christians. Because when they came into the church, they weren't told anything about this. They weren't told they were to keep the law. They weren't told that they were to be circumcised. And then for someone to be insisting that way upon them, they were resisting. And Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they were right here seeing this whole conflict brewing between one group and the other. One group is pushing this way and the other group is pushing the other way. And Paul and Barnabas were trying to right the ship. It was a conflict that needed resolved. You know, the devil loves to instigate conflict in the Lord's church. He will work overtime trying to set one person against another person, one group against another group, and he has a lot of success in doing what he does. He is a master at dividing people. He is a master at lying to people. He is a master at getting people worked up over little things and then for causing them to forget about the big thing, which is the glory of his name and the fact that there are people out there in the world who are lost that need saved. We get so worked up over the little that we forget the big. 
Remember, my brethren, people are watching us and they are listening to us. And when they hear us picking at one another and they see us fighting at one another and and being bitter towards each other, they don't want any part of that. I mean, that's not inviting them into the church. That's not giving them any reason to want to be a part of the church. They get all that kind of stuff out there in the world. Why would they want to come into the church and experience that kind of life too? The end result is they walk away. Satan wants us to forget who our real enemy is. And we must not forget Our enemy is not each other. Amen? Our enemy is not each other. Our enemy is Satan. This conflict that was in the early church had to be resolved. And so what did Paul and Barnabas do? They took the question that was being debated to the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. In other words, they went to the top to try and get the question answered. Remember, they did not have the New Testament in written form at this time that they could look at Romans or or, uh, Corinthians or or one of the, the, the references in the New Testament that talk about this issue and define it for us they, that answers the question they didn't have the new testament in written form now there were some scriptures in the old testament that actually as you read through acts chapter 15 you see james standing up and he's giving reference to the time that the gentiles would come into the church there were plenty of scriptures from the prophets that talked about that there would come a time when the Gentiles would come into the fold of God. But even as I read that scripture that James gives reference to out of Amos chapter 9, it really doesn't answer this question of, are we saved by grace or are we saved by works? And that's the question that was being debated. And so Paul and Barnabas, they they felt like they knew the truth themselves, that that we were saved by grace, not by works. But they went to the Jerusalem church, to the elders there, and to the apostles there, and they presented the question, "This this is the situation that we're in, this is the conflict that we are having at the church in Antioch. Can you help us out with the answer? I mean, they had to get this right. The life of the church was at stake here. And long story short, they did get it right. Their conclusion in verse 11, we read it earlier, Peter's speaking, and he's giving reference to the time that that he... He was the one who brought the gospel to the Gentiles first. Do you remember whose house that was in? Cornelius, chapter 10. We've been there several uh, weeks back or even a few months ago. This is the, the time that he's giving reference to, that he presented the message to the Gentiles, the, the, the 
the household of Cornelius. And it was obvious the Holy Spirit had been given to them just as He had been given to us in those early days at Pentecost. And Peter says this, verse 11, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. In other words, they decided that one's salvation is not by the works of the law. It's not by one's ability to keep the law. It's not through circumcision. Rather, salvation is a gift that God gives to those who believe in His Son, Jesus. Now that's the historical context. That's what was taking place in that early church. Let me move to a second point here, the present day application. I want to ask you, 2,000 years later, is it still true that we're saved by grace and not by the works of the law? Absolutely yes, it's true. Now, now we have the New Testament in written form that we can back that up. And I want you to hear the testimony of Scripture. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In his sight. Chapter 3 of Romans verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. How many times can you say it in one verse? Three times in that particular verse, Paul says that we are not justified by the works of the law. Rather, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. point is very clear from Scripture. No one is made right before God by keeping the law. In other words, we cannot be good enough. This way of thinking that that if my good outweighs my bad, then God's going to let me into heaven. That is erroneous thinking. That is a lie from the devil. No man can save himself by his own goodness. Romans 3 verse 10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Only Christ is righteous. Only Christ has been able to live according to the law. He kept it perfectly. And then He chose to become the perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He paid the price for us. We then need to put our faith in Him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a passage that really we should all memorize because it... it, 
hits the nail on the head in this particular subject. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no one may boast. Plant this truth deep, deep, deep into your mind and into your heart. We are saved by God's grace. You cannot do enough good works to enter into heaven, to earn your way into heaven. You cannot love enough. You cannot obey enough. You cannot pray enough. You cannot be in church enough. You cannot give enough that God would open the door for you into heaven. The only way that that doorway into heaven will open for you or for me is that we have put our faith in the only begotten Son of God and we have trusted in Him as our Savior. I mean, I I can't baptize enough people. I can't preach enough sermons. I can't make enough hospital calls or nursing home visits. I I can't do enough good for, for other people that I could merit my own salvation. And neither can you. The old saying is so true. It's not what we do, but it's what He has done. His grace is enough for all of us. And so where do good works come in? If we're saved by grace and not by works, where then do good works come in? Because they are important. Good works are the byproduct of our faith. Let me read to you from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Actually, 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. So, let's get this straight. We are saved by God's grace through faith. And that faith then that we have in Jesus and His amazing grace as it is poured over us, that then spurs us on to want to do great things for Him. My love to others is prompted by the fact that He has loved me first. My giving is not because I have to give and I'm trying to earn my way there thinking that if I give enough, then I'll earn His favor. No, I give to Him of my money because He has given to me of His life. 
And He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Every blessing that I have comes from Him. And so doesn't it make sense that His grace to me, His giving to me, would cause me to want to give back to Him? You see, that's, that's how it works. My service to Him is not out of obligation and, and, and the fact that I, I'm trying to get enough good deeds to my name that He becomes happy with me. Rather, I'm serving Him because I'm passionate about Him. He has given me His blood and His life. He has given to me forgiveness of sins. He has given to me the promise of heaven. I want to serve Him. And I witness to others about Him. Not because I have to. Not because I'm trying to earn enough points to get to heaven. But rather I witness to others about Him because this is the best news that I know. And I want to share it with them. He has saved us. He has helped us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He has, he has washed our slate clean. He's given us a chance to be reborn. I want to tell others about that chance that they have too. To put it simply, His grace to me helps me to be gracious to others. And I'm thinking next Sunday, I really, really hope you will be here next Sunday as Richard Koss is going to be with us. And his testimony to us, I think, will be exactly what I'm saying today to you. Uh, I've not met Richard personally. I've talked to him on the phone. I've, I've, I've read his bio. I've, I've looked at his book. And, and in fact, we have his book in the lobby today. If you want to pick one of those, those copies up, uh, it's, it's a great story. He's had quite a colorful past, to say the least. He's lived a lot of years behind bars for crimes that he was guilty of. He was in need of God's grace. And in March of 1969, in fact, interestingly, he gave his life to Jesus on the same day that I gave my life to Jesus. March 16th, 1969. When I read that in his bio, I thought... Boy, we've got something in common. <laughs> More ways than one. We transferred our life by God's grace from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light on the exact same day. And you know what? You'll hear his testimony and you'll, you'll be reminded that God's grace changed everything for him. It changed his past. It changed his present. It changed his future. Because ever since, he's been on that road of preaching Jesus to other people. His life was changed by the grace of God. He stopped being a fighter 
And he became a peacemaker. He changed from that kingdom of, of the evil one to the kingdom of the awesome one. And God's grace can help you change too. And it can set you on fire for serving Him. If we'll just get a, a picture of God's grace in our mind and hold on to that, and if we will let God's grace get a hold of us, and really that's the question I want to leave with you today. Will you let God's grace get a hold of you? Can you imagine what could happen if all of us really did let the grace of God get a hold of us? The same thing could happen here in this community, in this whole area that happened in the book of Acts as it says that the whole world was upset with the gospel. There were cities that were turned upside down because people let the grace of God get a hold of them. And it caused them to be different people. There's a lot more in the 15th chapter of Acts that we could talk about. But this question of God's grace versus our works, which are we saved by, that's the big question in Acts chapter 15. And the answer is infinitely clear. We are saved by the grace of God. And the rest of that chapter, interestingly, if you read through it, there were some things decided by the elders and the, the apostles, and they put it all in the form of a letter, and they sent it back to the church as to how they were supposed to live. And basically what, what it all boils down to is the Gentiles were then asked to live their life for Jesus with their brother in mind. In other words, this idea of it's not just about me, but I have brothers and sisters around me too, and I want to be mindful of them, and I, want, I don't want to be a stumbling block to them. I want to encourage them. I want to, I want to help them in their walk with Jesus, and they're going to help me in my walk with Jesus. In other words, it's not just between me and Jesus, it's me and Jesus and all the other brothers and sisters in Christ too. And if we could live that way, thankful to God for His grace, being mindful of our brothers around us and our sisters, and that we live to encourage them and love them, then God's going to do great things through us. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for those early church leaders, Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James, and the elders of that church, Lord, in Jerusalem, who took this question on and they, they answered it according to your truth. 
Lord, I pray for our leaders today in our church, our elders, our staff here. Just help us to live life in an exemplary way. To honor Christ and to be examples to the flock and and to be able to lead the flock into the truth of God. Thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, help us to let that grace get a hold of us. And then that the works would find their place in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name.